Please turn to Matthew's Gospel chapter 6 where we've been for some time and where we'll be for a little while longer as we continue preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached, the greatest sermon ever preached. I'm on message number 26 in this series and I probably am barely halfway through. Matthew 26 will conclude our exposition of what is known as the Lord's Prayer today, though that's not the end of the Sermon on the Mount, of course, but it is incorporated in Jesus' first giving of the Sermon on the Mount. We spent several weeks on this model prayer, probably more familiar than most passages of Scripture to people that may not even be Christians, the Lord's Prayer. Think of the Lord's Prayer with me for just a moment before we even read it. It is not some pious ritual. It's not just some pious mumbo-jumbo that He wants us to parrot mindlessly every day. But let's not discount the importance of it. It is a divine template. It is inspired of God. We don't have to be a slave to the wording of the so-called Lord's Prayer. There are other prayers that are acceptable. They, they come from our hearts and are spiritual and scriptural. We don't have to be a slave to the wording of this prayer, but don't discount its importance. The Lord's Prayer is the essence of all true prayer. We never get beyond this prayer in this life. And the heart of all true prayer is asking. Again, I say, we have not prayed until we've asked God for something. And so Jesus gives us six petitions that need to be a part of our praying because we ask God for these things. We've examined them all over the last several weeks. Every request we make should fall in the category of one or more of these six But Jesus is not done just mentioning, giving these six petitions. He gives us a majestic doxology before He says the final amen. Let's not ignore or neglect this closing just because it may may not be in some of the older manuscripts. This doxology belongs in the Lord's Prayer. So we'll read it in its entirety beginning in verse 9. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Jesus says, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's a petition. May your name be hallowed. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And here it is, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. These closing words of the Lord's Prayer are not just a P.S. attached at the end. They're not just a mere formality. They are most important because they return the focus to God. Prayer begins with God Prayer climaxes with God. It ends with God. 
Our prayers must be God-centered. We need to be conscious as we pray of Him with whom we have to do, because all things are transparent in His eyes, the Bible says. In prayer, the believer is brought full circle in trust and worship to God. God is first. God is last. Jesus Christ is the author and the finisher of our faith. He inspires faith, and He rewards faith. Praise should always accompany prayer. It is heaven's own release valve for the burden and the stress of prayer. This sublime prayer would not seem complete without some sort of doxology. We must end as we began by praising our great God and Father. So let's make sure that when we come into His presence, we come in the right way. I'm glad we don't sing some of the stupid songs we used to sing about put your hand in the hand of the man who stilled the waters and all these trivial ways we referred to God in the past. I hope we put them behind us forever. The late John R. W. Stott, although we wouldn't agree with his theology in some areas, made this statement, and I think he's right on. I quote, when we come to God in prayer, we do not come hypocritically like play actors seeking the applause of men. Neither do we come mechanically like pagan babblers whose mind is not in their mutterings. But we come humbly, thoughtfully, and trustfully like little children coming to their Father. And that is the essence of prayer. With that in mind, let's take apart this doxology, and I trust that we'll have more of the spirit of true praise and worship as a result of it. We'll break it up into its three components, and then we'll talk about the final amen. First of all, we have an acknowledgment of God's sovereignty, for thine is the kingdom. Thine is the kingdom. We should not only ask things of God, but we should ascribe things to God. We talked about God's kingdom back in the second petition, as it's mentioned there in verse 10, thy kingdom come. Right now, the kingdom of God, as we brought out several weeks ago, it's in spiritual form. It's not in its physical manifestation. The king is invisibly in the hearts of his subjects here on earth. Where is the kingdom? Where the king is. Where's the king, if you're saved? In your heart and in your life. We are his subjects, but one day he will make his outward reign manifest and know how glorious it will be. But even now, as we read in the book of Psalms, Psalm 103, verse 19, his kingdom ruleth over all. Now, we need to be reminded of that as Americans. And I am proud to be an American, and you'll see that next Sunday as we observe Independence Day here. But we as Americans regard as almost sacred the idea that government, as it's stated in some of our founding documents, government should be of the people, by the people, and for the people. Now, that may be true as, as far as governments among fallible fallen men, but may I remind you, God's kingdom is not of the people, by the people, and for the people. 
as the late Dr. R.C. Sproul said, his rule extends over me whether I voted for him or not. And that's true. He owns his right to rule. When we say that God is sovereign, we mean that he rules supreme. God has the right to do what he pleases, when he pleases, with anybody he pleases to do it with, and he doesn't have to give account to anybody. And if that bothers you, you've got an issue with God, not me. If that bothers you, it just exposes your depravity. It doesn't expose any supposed virtue of sturdy self-reliance. When proud King Nebuchadnezzar was humbled by Daniel's God, and he had to eat straw like, and grass like an ox for a time, seven times, however long that was. And finally his sanity was restored to him, and men came and sought him back, and he was reinstated upon the throne. This is what he said in Daniel chapter 4, verse 15, He, that is God, doeth according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? God is supreme in the realms of creation and providence and grace. He reigns in heaven and in earth. All created things, both animate and inanimate, are under His complete control. Let's make sure we understand that. We don't see all things yet put under Jesus' feet, but but all things are under God's sovereign control. Secondly, we own His rectitude in ruling. You say, what does that big word mean? You probably haven't used that word this week. Rectitude. Here it's, this is what it means. Rectitude is correctness or righteousness in judgment. There are a lot of decisions made by the courts in our land that are not right. They're not correct. Sometimes when they're appealed, they're made right. Sometimes they're made worse. But may I remind you that God is always right whether He meets my expectations and criteria or your expectations and criteria of fairness. His judgments are true and righteous altogether, it says in the 19th Psalm, verse 9. And how familiar that sounds to the passage we read earlier in the service from, from uh, Revelation chapter 15. Well, we didn't read the 15th chapter, we read chapter 5, but a similar scene is given to us in chapter 15, which speaks of the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, where the, that the saints will sing with harps in their hands on the sea of glass. This is what we will sing, great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are thy ways, King of saints. We may have a hard time saying that now, but we will then. Some people have a hard time with God's total destruction of Noah's generation with the great flood, of the total destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, men, women, and children with fire and brimstone, and of the ancient Canaanite civilization, the nations that God dispossessed before Israel. We may have a hard time with that now, 
But at that moment, when we stand before God and sing the song of Moses and of the Lamb, we will applaud God's perfect rectitude. And so even now, I encourage you to qualify for the blessing that is pr- pronounced by Jesus toward John the Baptist. I'll get to it in a moment. But let's be careful how we respond to the mysteries and reversals of life because we all face them. Probably don't go a single day without encountering something we wish hadn't happened that we didn't expect don't think we deserved. When we don't understand God's providences, what should our response be? It should be that of Eli, the great godly high priest, though he was a miserable example of a father. But when the boy Samuel who'd been taken to him by his parents, gave Eli some pretty heavy news. His response was this, it is the Lord. Let him do what seemeth him good. Folks, we've got to end there. We've got to come back to that. That's not fatalism. That is genuine submission of heart. And when we can do that, it qualifies for the blessing I alluded to that Jesus sent by communication to his servant, John the Baptist, who was languishing in prison. And for some strange reason, Jesus didn't come see him. Jesus didn't come pray with him. All Jesus did was send a communication to John the Baptist and tell him the things that were being done by him as the Messiah. And then he said, by the way, tell him one more thing. Tell him this. Blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. Whosoever shall not stumble in me. Whosoever shall not stumble over the mysteries of life that I permit. We need to be careful with this. Some of you are intellectuals. Some of you think you are, but you're not. Some of you don't think you are, but you are. But those who are intellectuals tend to overthink some things. And especially when it comes to the Word of God, they try to analyze God and figure Him out. Let me just say it. If you could figure God out, you'd be God. God is inscrutable. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our our thoughts. He cannot be found out. Why don't we just let God be God. We'd be a lot happier. So the first thing we need to realize is this God's sovereignty and acknowledging it. The second thing we need to realize in this doxology is an affirmation of God's power. For thine is not only the kingdom, but it's the power. The Greek here is the familiar dunamis from which we get our word dynamite. After we have prayed for God's kingdom to come to earth, after we have prayed for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, after we've prayed for God to provide for our daily needs and to forgive our sins and to deliver us from evil and temptation, we need to acknowledge and we need to remind ourselves that the power to do that all belongs to God, not to us, not to any other man. But somebody's always quick to object and say, but pastor, don't we need to put feet to our prayers? Isn't it a cop-out to just put it all on God? Okay, listen carefully to the answer. 
Yes, when it is within our power to do what we know is right, we need to do it, right? That's why James, who gives us a very practical epistle, talks about practical godliness, vital godliness, says in chapter 2 of his little epistle, verse 15, if a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled. Notice the passive tense, be ye warmed and filled. Somebody else do it. Notwithstanding, you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Yes, if it's within our power to do it, we need to do it, answer our own prayers. But even then, the ability and the power has been imparted to us, right? It's delegated, it's derived, it's not inherent in us. We give to others because God has freely given to us from His own unlimited store. Let's never forget that. Please notice with me, first of all, that the scope of power is absolute omnipotence. If you turn quickly to Psalm 62, we'll have you looking at several verses today, and I would ask you to just turn quickly because a lot to cover. Psalm 62 and verse 11, one of those absolutes in the Bible that's so important. Verse 11 of Psalm 62, God hath spoken once, that ought to be enough, right? But notice the next word, twice have I heard this, that power belongeth unto God. That's one of those double knocks. That's like a verily, verily. Power belongeth unto God. And so the resurrected Christ said to His disciples after His resurrection, all power, all authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And in that authority, we are to go to the ends of the earth and give His saving gospel to every creature. When we pray in Jesus' name, oh, what a amazing power we are harnessing. We are signing Jesus' name, as it were, to a, a blank check. We are, uh, that check is drawn on the bank of heaven. And don't you think Jesus has a pretty good high credit limit? There's no danger that we might overdraw His account. So God has not only the right to do what He pleases, He has the ability to do as He pleases. And because he never sleeps, he never misses an opportunity. He that keepeth Israel neither slumbers nor sleep. None can withstand him. The Bible says in Daniel chapter 4 verse 35, nothing is too hard for him. As the great African-American preacher on the West Coast said many years ago in his famous message, that's my king. S.M. Lockridge, he said, you can't impeach him, and he's not going to resign. He is holy, and he never abuses his power, whether we agree with him or not. The scope of his power is absolute omnipotence. The source of his power uh, is God's Spirit. We often sing it here, and I hope we never tire of it. I hope we mean it. All is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. If we really believe that, we would seek God's face more earnestly than ever before in importunate, fervent, prevailing prayer, saying with Jacob of old as he wrestled with the angel, I will not let thee go until you bless me. 
Can I be honest with you? I haven't seen much desperation in prayer lately. I've heard a lot of beautiful prayers. I've heard a lot of scriptural prayers. But I haven't seen much holy desperation. It's not knowledge. It's not persuasiveness. It's not eloquence that brings power to us and myself as an example to this pulpit is the descent of the power of the Holy Spirit. He is the power of God. And apart from His agency, even the most doctrinally correct, wonderful preaching is sterile and insipid and unblessed. The letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. I'm glad my wife is teaching through about the power of the Holy Spirit in her Sunday school class. This is for ladies and as well as men. And I make no apology for saying this. I solicit, solicit your prayers as I prepare and deliver sermons week after week. I did a little reflection this week and computation. I'm not all that good at math. It's been a while since I took math courses, but I think I'm pretty accurate. Since I became pastor and begin with co-pastor of this church, I've preached over 2,200 sermons from this book. That's a lot of preaching. That's a lot of sermons. How can I stay fresh? How can I not get stale? I'll be the first to tell you, it's only by the fresh oil of the Holy Spirit, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And that's where you come in. I beg you, pray for me. How much I depend upon those prayers. Or I'll be as dry as last year's bird's nest after preaching 2,200 times. Beloved, do we really believe in the anointing of the Spirit of God, or is it just some pious jargon that we agree with others about? One of my heroes under God is Charles Spurgeon. He's still quoted so much, so often. Interestingly enough, in his lifetime, he was vilified. At the end of his life, he died of a broken heart. His own denomination opposed him. And he said, I will be eaten by dogs in the next 50 years, but in the more distant future I will be vindicated. And he was, and now people are reading him again, and have been. When Spurgeon built the Metropolitan Baptist Tabernacle in London, England, I've been there. Of course, the original structure is burned down. The facade, the front is the same. But when he built that, it was the largest auditorium in the world for preaching. 6,500 people could hear him preach, and they packed it out. He would, start the sermon, he would start the service at the floor level and call out a hymn. They didn't believe in instrumental music. I don't know how in the world God blessed them. I don't know how in the world. You've got to have an instrument. And I'm not opposed to instruments. I'm amazed that without any instruments at all, just a a pitch pipe, the power of God fell service after service after service at that place. 
But he would call out a hymn, and then he would pray. And let me tell you, he would, you think my pastoral prayers are long. We stood there. We sat there. I'm glad we were sitting. Uh, well, uh, in the absence of the current pastor, my wife and I were there one time, and, and, and the man prayed 25 minutes. They believe in prayer. And then Spurgeon, after he prayed, he'd go up a double circular flight of steps, 15 to get to the pulpit where he preached. He was really high. And he was a big man. He was a heavy set man. And with every footfall, he would consciously say, I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in the Holy Ghost 15 times every service. By the time he opened his lips, you could tell he was filled with the Holy Ghost. Beloved, that's what I want. That's what I need. I must have it. Let's believe in it. The source of the power is the Spirit of God. The stockpile of power is this book right here. This is the repository the depository where God's power is concentrated, the Bible. It doesn't need to be embellished. It doesn't need to be contextualized. It's like a lion, just turn it loose. It's the sword of the Spirit. And like David said of the sword of Goliath, there is none like it, give it me. It's the sword of the Spirit. It is alive and quick and powerful. Just take it out of its sheath. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and the Spirit, and of the joints and the marrow is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It takes the sharp discerning work of God the Spirit to discern between a person's soul and spirit. So if you're not if you're not doing exploits for God, if you're not growing spiritually, if you're not seeing people saved, you need to search your own heart. It's not the fault of God. It's not the fault of God's Word. The power is right here. It's still with us to the end of the age, but maybe, maybe you're not engaged. There's a defect in the transmission. I beg you to beg God for the fullness of the Spirit of God. Oh, I know what we say. You know I depart from the beaten track on this. So often we say, well, at the moment of salvation, we got all there is of the Holy Spirit, so seek no more. So we don't. And we don't get any more. Always getting real quiet. Beloved, yes, we are indwelt by the Spirit of God at the moment of conversion, but Luke eleven thirteen is written to God's people when Jesus said, If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? That's to Christians. I'll leave it with you. The power is in the Word, and the Holy Spirit uses the Word. And cuts the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Oh, we need to reaffirm our faith in the Word of God. The great Spurgeon, 
I don't apologize for quoting him so much. He's an example of the things I'm talking about in more recent history. Spurgeon said that there are some plants that are so full of life that if only a leaf is planted in the soil or just a portion of a leaf, it will sprout and grow. So a single verse or just a phrase from a verse that is hidden in the heart of a child can be the means of bringing life and revival to a heart, a home, a community, or an entire nation. Beloved, let's pray that the Word will run as never before. Let's meditate in the Word of God until it warms our heart. You say, how much of the Word should I read every morning? Read enough till your heart gets warm. Hide it in your heart. Be God's instrument giving it to others. Let's quit looking for power in the wrong places. It's not in a program. It's not in a technique. It's not in a music style, even a conservative music style. It's not in a personality. It's in the Word of God. It is like a fire. It's a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces. It can break the heart hard as adamant. And so I challenge you in every wise and worthy way, get the Word to people. The gospel alone is the power, the dunamis, the dynamite of God unto salvation. Sometimes it has to be stored up, has to be stockpiled for a while in a person's heart and life, just like that last snowflake has to be mounted up before the avalanche starts, and it unleashes its mighty power. But it's the Word that does the work. Thirdly, we find here an ascription of glory to God. For thine is not only the kingdom and the power, but the glory forever. May I remind you that everything God does is for His glory? Everything. The most God-centered person in the world is God. And that's a good thing. All the glory, all the credit, all the honor for intrinsic worth must be reserved for God alone. Now, we use that phrase a lot, the glory of God, doing things for God's glory. Maybe we ought to stop and think, what do we mean by that? How would you define the glory of God? It's not as easy as you think. A lot of good definitions out there. Here's some good ones. The glory of God is His splendor and majesty. Another one, the infinite beauty and greatness of His manifold perfections that He displays in some knowable or communicable way. Here's another one, the radiance and display of His holiness, the sum toto of His holiness. As we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount on these, on these Sundays, let me remind you that everything that Jesus commands in this sermon or even commends us to do in this sermon should be for the glory of God. Otherwise, it's nothing. It's, it's worse than nothing. God's glory, for example, should be our chief motivation in prayer. I love what Paul said in Romans eleven thirty six. 36. If you just jot down this reference, he said, for of him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Remember how John the Baptist referred to Jesus. He said, He must increase, 
but I must decrease. Would you take your Bibles and turn to the Old Testament once again, 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 11. 1 Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 11. Let me give you the background while you're turning there. This is at the end of David's life. God has told him that he's not going to let him build the temple, though he had prepared for it with great abundance and with all of his heart. And so the people are gathering to him, and they're bringing all their things. They're rejoicing because they've offered willingly, and David is presenting Solomon before them as his son is the one who will be king on the throne in his place and the one who will build this beautiful temple to God. And here is what David says in verse 11, how strikingly familiar it sounds. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. Do you think maybe the Lord's prayer has been around a lot longer than we think? A millennium before Jesus Christ, David ascribed the kingdom and the power and the glory to God. How we need to remember this when we pray, because the great root of all sin and even sinful praying is self and self-seeking. It's easy to pray for our own pleasure, our own glory. It's easy to pray to to get ahead in life. It's easy to pray to outshine somebody else. It's easy to pray to be vindicated in the comparison with someone else. But Jesus said concerning this kind of praying, verily, verily, I say unto you, you have your reward. That's all you're going to get. I love the example of the great man of prayer, George Mueller. I think most of you know who I'm talking about, at least something about this man that lived a century ago, almost a century and a half. Great man of prayer. He's known for how he, just by prayer and talking to God, not telling a single soul his needs, he fed and clothed and and provided for and educated uh, thousands of orphans in Bristol, England. But when he was praying over possibly expanding the work of the orphanage. You want to make sure it was God's will. It's interesting to read what he said about that. He would, I'll just summarize it. I hope you'll find the more comprehensive account. He would sift, he would weigh, he would examine his own heart and motives until he was sure that the first and foremost reason that he was praying that God would enlarge his coast was that, and I quote, this is his exact words, that God might be magnified by the fact that the orphans under His care were provided with all that they needed. Only by prayer and faith, without anyone being asked, thereby it might be seen, here it is, that God was faithful still and still heard and answered prayer, end of quote. It wasn't just his heart of pity for those orphans, and there were many of them back in England in those days. As powerful a motive as that was, that wasn't the supreme motive. He longed to furnish, and he called it a practical demonstration, an object lesson to the church at large and to a careless world that God is still as He was 4,000 years ago, the living God. Is it any wonder God honored that? And only when Mueller was confident that by taking in more orphans 
into additional homes that he would build, that greater glory would accrue to God only when he knew that God would be looked at and admired and magnified and trusted in at all times. Only then did he proceed with definite plans to expand the work, and it wasn't because one shilling had come in for it. Wow. Secondly, God's glory should be our chief concern. Would you turn to the true Lord's Prayer, as you've heard me refer to that, John 17, verse 1. I've been studying this prayer along with the disciples' prayer, what, how rich a comparison that is. John 17, verse 1, we read that God's glory should be our chief concern, even as Jesus prayed to His Father. These words spake Jesus and lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come, glorify Thy Son. Notice that. Glorify Me, Your Son, that Thy Son also may glorify Thee. Jesus was asking that He might be the means of expressing and manifesting how great and holy and loving and merciful and true His Father was. But I ask you, how could He say those two things in the same breath? Glorify me and let me glorify you. How could He do that? Let's stop and think for a moment. What is glory? Glory is just the manifestation of what God is and Christ is the manifestation of God. The glory of God is in the face of Jesus Christ, Paul told the Corinthians. The late great English preacher, Dr. F. B. Meyer, who was a contemporary of Spurgeon, looks like I'm hung up on Spurgeon's generation this morning, but there were a lot of great ones then. F. B. Meyer, some of you have been in F. B. Meyer's church. He'd gone by then. He was a contemporary Spurgeon, but he outlived him. F.B. Meyer pointed out that in one form or another, we're all constantly asking the Father to glorify us. So we don't say it in those words. We won't come right out and say that, but that's what we're really asking. And it's not necessarily sinful to ask God, like Jabez of old, the famous prayer of Jabez, to, it's not sinful to ask God to enlarge our coast. It's not sinful to ask Him to give us a promotion at work, if it's His will, or to let our congregation grow, or to bring revival to our church, or to let our children excel in school in their class. That's not wrong to pray that way if, here's the big if, if we can sincerely say with Christ that we desire to be glorified only that we may be better able to glorify God. And when that is true, F.B. Meyer said, there is no stint to what He will confer on us. Glory like a golden river will be poured into our hearts and lives. Why? Because our Father can trust us with His glory, knowing that we desire only to thereby glorify Him. One more thing I feel I must say. God is glorified when Satan's assaults are rebuffed. This doxology that concludes the Lord's Prayer, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. It uh, certainly relates to all six of the petitions that go before it, but there seems to be a reference to the last one. But deliver us from evil, and then immediately following, 
for. Deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom. Don't you think there's a connection there? God's kingdom gains when we are delivered from Satan's kingdom. And I may be speaking to some here this morning. I'm assuming I'm speaking primarily to God's children. Those of you who know him, you've been born again by faith in in Jesus Christ. But there may be one among us or more that are listening or who will listen to the live stream that are not born again. You do not know that you are saved and children of God. May I just remind you of what the Bible says about your condition? The Bible says that you're in darkness. Oh, you may be brilliant. You may have risen to the top of your class or to the top of your corporation, but spiritually you're dark. You've been blinded by the God of this world. You are still in the kingdom of darkness. You're in the kingdom of Satan. Jesus said to the sinners of his day, for you have, ye are of your father, the devil, and the works of your father ye will do. You will do because you're pawns on a chessboard. You do what he commands. And the only way you can be saved is to be translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. And that happens with the new birth that Jesus described to a religious man, Nicodemus. He said, you must be born again. And it's in that same chapter that we read that marvelous 16th verse of John chapter 3, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. You must believe, you must trust in Jesus as your only hope of heaven. You must turn from your sin. God knows, and Satan knows, that he cannot touch God, so he tries to get back at him through man, who's created in God's image. Thus, every assault on us is really an attack on the sovereignty and dominion of the one over us. Let's not be surprised. But when we pray for God's glory, we can have great boldness to plead with God, because Satan is defeated in our lives. My God shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. Let's claim that promise and many others. I've got to wrap it up. God's glory, God's dominion are the two first things mentioned in this prayer. They're the last two things named. God's glory is the alpha and the omega in this prayer. Prayer is not about us, though it affects us. It benefits us. Prayer is all about God. But then there's the amen at the end. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. The first word that most children learn belongs in a prayer is amen. When you have a long prayer at Thanksgiving meal, a little longer than usual at least, they'll say it in chorus with you, amen. But they don't know what it means. But the sad thing is many of God's children don't know what it means. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen or amen. As S.M. Lockridge, the great African-American preacher out in San Diego said in his famous sermon, and that's my king, he said, 
We can add ever and ever and ever and ever, and then when you get through with all the forevers, amen. But what does amen mean? It's an interesting word. It is really a Hebrew word, even though it's in our Greek Bible, it's in the Old Testament. It's kind of like the word hallelujah. It's the same in every language. You don't have to really translate it. It's transliterated in Greek and Aramaic and other languages. It literally means, so be it, or let it be so. It's similar to the Greek aman, A-M-A-N, we would spell it, which means, are you listening, true and faithful. Amen, amen. What should we mean when we say amen? We need to be careful. Sometimes we say amen, but we haven't, we, we haven't stopped to consider what we're saying amen to. If I get up here and say everybody who dies without Jesus Christ is going to hell, I hope you don't say amen. Not yet. It means so let it be. So we're first of all expressing our desire and supplication. We're putting an exclamation mark of fervent desire to what's been prayed. We're saying, oh God, let it be so. So amen is not just a formality. If any word ought to be a heartfelt word in a prayer, it is amen. Please don't say amen until, unless you mean it. Make sure that you agree with what has just been read or said. But then it's also an expression of our faith, an avowal of our confidence expression of assurance. In 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20, we read, for all the promises of God in Him, that is in Jesus, are yea and in Him, what class? Amen. Amen. Under the glory of God by us. Please don't end your prayer in doubt that God has heard you and will answer. End your prayer in confident expectation that He will answer. Why? Because He has promised to. We can have assurance that what we ask we receive because God has so promised. Jesus is God's great amen. He's faithful. Jesus is the fulfillment of all our petitions. In Him, God's name is hallowed. In Him, God's kingdom comes. In Jesus, God's will is done. For our sake, our physical lives are preserved, and we pray, give us this day our daily bread. For His sake, we receive forgiveness of sins. We are forgiven for Jesus' sake. It is in His power we are protected from temptation. It is in His power that we are delivered unto life. So His is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. So let it Let's pray. Oh God, may we never recite the Lord's Prayer in quite the same way again. Let our desires be consonant with yours. Lord, may we long for your kingdom and your will and your power and your authority to be seen and done and acknowledged and advanced and admired and trusted in. Oh God, give us a heart like thine. If there's one here this morning or one listening or watching by means of live stream who, who needs a new heart 
Would you give them that? Do the work of regeneration in their lives that only you can do. Enable them to repent of sin, to exercise personal faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary for their behalf. Thine be the glory, O God, both now and forever. Let our hearts echo to that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll stand our feet.